welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How many E's are in this title? It's pretty confusing. Oh, there's three of them. That's right. Today we have Salona Bonewald on. Salona is the executive director of IEEE SA Open. We're going to learn what that means. It is a comprehensive platform offering the open source community cost-effective options for developing and validating their projects. Previously, she was the vice president of community architecture at Hyperledger, which was hosted by the Linux Foundation, did a ton of stuff before that, integrating leaders in finance, banking, IoT, supply chains, manufacturing, other notable stuff. She has worked at PayPal. She's pioneered with InnerSource Process. That's going to be with Denise Cooper. She's worked for Siemens AG. Basically, Salona has been through the open source ringer. She has known everyone here. She is also the president of Leading Bit Solutions. Salona, that was a lot of talking. It is good to have you on. How are you? Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Because you know that sustainability is near and dear to my heart. So, <laughs> yay. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> Open source has been around for, I don't know, 25 years at this point. I mean, as long as Denise Cooper has been alive. So one of the questions <laughs> I have for you is how did you first get involved with open source? So I was a, what is it, a taker, not a maker at first in regards to open source in that I first came in and I was using it for, I had my own ISP in the mid nineties. Yeah. And so it was really funny because we had both Linux and Windows because we were specializing in people that were wanting to create their own website. So back then it was like, I was doing that, but like CGI scripts were such a pain with all the different hosting groups. And I found myself continuously teaching them on what to do. And so I'm like, screw this. I'm going to start my own business. I live in Austin, Texas. I'm near the nap. I'm going to just like hook on in, you know? And so that's what I did. And of course, one of the first things I did was Linux. It was pretty funny that I became better at Windows than at Linux. The Windows machine was going down a lot while the Linux machine wasn't. (laughs) But thankfully, I took very good notes in my O'Reilly books. So whenever I had a problem with the Linux machine, I just opened up some of my O'Reilly books and go, oh, oh, here's where I did everything. (laughs) And so I was doing that in the mid nineties and then I continued, ended up using a bunch of stuff, but didn't really get into being a maker until 2004 when I started getting into open government. And I was doing this, I'd done a a bunch of large content management systems. In fact, um, did a very large one for Ubisoft. And 20 different teams all over the world, no consistent workflow, blah, 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 lots of diversified assets, et cetera, agnosium. And I was advocating for the ACLU on all things technical and looked at how the sausage was being made and went, I can fix this and designed a type of content management system that was actually mercurial based with Merkle trees. Because of the fact that legislation, they would change it behind our backs. And that made me very annoyed and frustrated. <laughs> yep. And I wanted a versioning system. And so that's what I did. It was kind of funny when GitHub came out because everybody at the State Department and the Department of Defense thought I'd written it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was so much like what I'd already done. Yeah. And, and then the logo is an octopus cat. So like they're like, duh, of course, this is Salona. And and I'm like, no, I I wasn't that astute. I feel really stupid now, but no, that wasn't me. (laughs) And so that's how I got involved in open source was doing all that. I was sitting there going, 
oh, government and all this, you know, public stuff needs to be open. And then that's also when I started citability because it wasn't just open source I wanted, but also open data, especially in regards to research. My mom's a fairly well-known researcher. And if you Google Dr. Bomald, you'll see all of her citations. And she kind of drilled into me reducibility, you know, making sure that everything is reproducible, you know, citable, all of those different things. And so I was like, we're paying for all of this <laughs> as taxpayers. So maybe we should get it too. And so that's what kind of got me all going and started in regards to it. But I did take a little bit of a different path in regards to open government and open data back when everybody really did think I was crazy for doing that in 2004. <laughs> it was really early. Open now is much more acceptable to have a much wider umbrella. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of people working in different parts of open than there used to be. Back then, open source was its own little thing. And the open stuff was like, that's not open source. Why are you even talking to me? At some yeah, point, I you segued. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell. Um, at some point, you segued from writing code to working on policy or like working right. higher up. How did that segue right. happen? The segue happened so that I could scale myself, honestly. Like I said, I was doing the content management systems. I was creating all of these different pieces. It was also one of those things where languages kind of changed a little bit underneath me too, in that I really yeah. liked C and C plus and Java. And then Python was also okay, but I wasn't into PHP and a bunch of the other languages. It seems like coding stimulates a part of my brain that is not compatible with the social part of my brain. It's like a hardware jumper where you have to like pull one off and put it onto the other. And so I had a really hard time shifting between the two. And so people would basically sit there and go, oh, Solon is not nice. And it's like, if I'm in the middle of coding and you come in and interrupt me, yeah, (laughs) I'm not nice. But it wasn't that I was like mean or anything. It's just that I was not the interaction that people wanted me to have. And so I'd have to like take a little time, move that jumper, and then I could come out and be presentable and nice and turn on all of those filters for everyone. But it was basically me deciding that I had to get the impact that I needed, I had to scale. And to scale me meant that I had to go more into policy, go into convincing people of a lot of different things and move over into that arena. That makes sense to me as someone who's often been interrupted while coding. It's, it's very annoying. It's, it's not nice. How did you end up at IEEE? So Joshua Gay, who I met back in those early days of open government, he was a grad student also working in open government. And I went out there searching for people like me. He was one of the first people I found. And he was talking about the fact that they're trying to help transition IEEE into open source. And what did I think and would I help advise them? And so I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? That sounds cool. And so I was doing that at the same time I was at Hyperledger. And so it's like, and also I was reformulating a bunch of things because I learned so much doing inner sourcing especially intersourcing at PayPal with Denise Cooper. And I was like, well, I see that there's a lot more here that we need to cover than what we're covering currently in open source. And here's why these things aren't making that transition. And here's where some of those different... And so I was experimenting with that at Hyperledger, but I only got to go so far with it. And then they were like, so we're launching this and we need a leader. Do you want to come and lead it? And I was like, yeah, I would like to come and lead it. Can you tell me what SA Open does? So what SA Open does is it's both a community and it's a platform. So 
what I mean by that is it's a platform. Yes. And so we're doing things, we're doing it all 100% open source. You know, that means up, down, crossways, every way that we can, we're trying to be as open as we can possibly be. You can never be hundred percent open though. I mean, just by being on AWS, it's like, are you 100% open? <laughs> no, but Hey, here we are. Just like you never were with certain computers either. Right. It's like, yeah, hardware's not open. So it's that platform, but the things, the platform by itself means little. It's really about the community surrounding it. And in fact, right now we're going through a bunch of processes where the community actually gives a lot of feedback in regards to what features they would like, sometimes writing those features, what additional tools they want to be put in the platform suite, all of those different aspects. And so it ends up being a lot more than that. And it has this very big community focus in regards to it, where the community gets to own it and all of that. So that's really nice to have because I don't feel like that's happened as much before as it needs to. Salona, you have mentioned before long-term vision. So when you say long-term vision, do you mean IEEE's or open source? When I say long-term vision, both. IEEE, when it comes to this platform, it's not a short-term thing. In fact, if it was a short-term thing, then they would have put everything on GitHub. But, you know, one of the things that we talked about, even before I came on board, one of the reasons they chose GitLab by doing GitLab C in their own version is standards thinks in decades, not in years. And they have to. And the forcing function for creating all of this was the fact that standards needed a better way to include a lot of this material. It needed a better way to include source code, data, open hardware, all of those different aspects. And putting it on GitHub in a weird way is like giving away your community. It's like, well, you can pull the data back out, but can you pull the community back out of GitHub? Not really. Good luck on that. And they've already got their own really vibrant community. I mean, they've got 420,000 members worldwide in 160 countries. They don't have to have GitHub's community. Uh, IEEE, right? Yeah, IEEE. The essay part is the standards portion, and that's still like 30,000 people, you know, worldwide helping make standards. And not only that, but GitHub wasn't really going to ever address their needs because they're not just open source software. It's like, yes, we want to provide frameworks and things of that nature. But like one of the first biggest problems was data and doing things like training data sets and resulting data sets and things of all that different nature that they needed to support the standards. Distributing that in a PDF sucks. <laughs> it's just not a good thing. Yep. And so being able to have something where you could distribute it better is really important. And then of course, they do a lot of hardware, how to run a nuclear power plant. So they've got some different needs than was the traditional sort that the other software programs were targeting. And so they're like, well, okay, over the next several years, how do we support that? And so it is one of those things where they don't, like I said, they think in decades, not in years. And so they're like, oh, well, okay, we can start creating these things soon and then we'll create that and then we'll do this and then we'll do that. So they have very long-term plans for this platform. So I guess I don't know a lot about standards. Can you tell me a bit more about how standards work? Why do they think in decades? And who are the people? Who are the 30,000 people involved with standards? So there's many, many standards bodies in the world. In fact, many countries have their own standards body. The U.S. government has NIST. Germany has DIN. And there's a lot of different ones. The one that you mentioned was the Unicode, which is actually done by a consortium, which is actually not a tech or software companies. There's like one that isn't, and then it's a bunch of software companies. And so they're kind of different than IEEE. 
IEEE is very, the standards, what they do, they try a lot to have what they call balance and no business or corporate dominance. So they work very hard on creating standards that are very balanced so that you don't have the problem that you're talking about right now (laughs) in regards to not being able to have influence, not being able to have all those different things. Other standards don't necessarily work that way. And there's different consensus mechanisms that they all use. In fact, it was kind of interesting. I met with one other standards group about what we're doing. And it was kind of funny. It seemed like they didn't care as much about the platform as they did about the consensus model, to which I'm like, you can plug in whatever you like in regards to that. And so you can create your own model in regards to how you prefer to create your standards. It was kind of funny. And we also found with IEEE, we also have something called IEEE ISTO, which is a 501C6, like the Linux Foundation, versus IEEE, which is a C3, which is a nonprofit. And we have a lot of other groups that create their own business consortiums to create a standard. And then once they're done creating that standard in their bubble, then they come over and then they want to go for an IEEE standard. But they do that a lot of times after they've sussed out the technology aspects, after they've like really figured out what they want this to be. And then they bring it out to the public because a lot of times I think that they feel like if they try to bring out it too early, they never get anywhere because there's just too much going on. And so they'll do certain things like that. There's a lot of different ways to create standards. I might be biased because I know this one better, but I really do love the not doing the corporate dominance aspect and the trying to achieve the balance pieces, I think is really important when you're creating a standard, especially if you want true adoptability is that if you sit there and you just randomly create a bunch of businesses and then they do it, then they don't actually have that. It kind of gets forced on people and it's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Which I think we've seen before. One of the questions I have is that you often talk to developers, you talk to open source developers and standards and open source are just on these different wavelengths, right? So it must be very hard for you to talk to developers and be like, no, this is how it goes, everyone. I said it last time. Do you feel like you're often trying to talk on, in two languages again, like you were when people would come into the room while you were coding? Yes, but I think that there's a lot that they can teach each other. My favorite little metaphor now is chocolate and peanut butter. You put your peanut butter in my chocolate. Oh, you put your chocolate in my peanut butter. And then you got the, you know, the Reese's Buttercups. That's how I feel a lot about open source and standards. Standards with doing the entire consensus process oftentimes can be too slow. And it's hard to do the innovation portions of it. While open source is a little bit too crazy for me a lot of times. When I first came over into open source, that was one of the things that kind of freaked me out a little. It's because I had been doing these really large scalable systems. And then I came into open source and it's like, woo! And being a Texan, I'm not that afraid of that. But it was still like, but what about, are you going to go take care of this thing over here? You know, is this a good idea? That was another reason why I convinced IEEE to do GitLab is because I remember SourceForge in 2005. Everyone's like, oh, SolarWinds. I'm like, dude, we've been having these problems for a long time. I'm like, this is nothing new. This is not a new thing. And the fact that we're still not protecting ourselves against that is a pretty serious flaw. And so when I brought that up to IEEE, they've also got long memories And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, oh, right, yeah, that. And then they're like, oh, then we don't want this, we want this, and we're going to have complete control over it. I was just like, okay, I don't know if you always want to go completely all the way to that direction, but you do want to make sure that, you know, everything is uh, hygienic, I guess, is the way of putting it in this day and age. 
but making sure that all of those different things are taken care of. And so that's one of the main things that the platform is doing is investing in that. And so sometimes it's like, we are open to all, but like one of my friends came over, they're like, oh yeah, I want to put my thing over here. And I'm just like, no, you don't. You want to go over to get <laughs> They're like, what? And I'm like, dude, we're going to make you grow up. We're going to make you do this and this and this and this. And you're not ready for that yet. If you're ever going to be ready for it. So don't put it over here, go put it over there for now. And then when you're ready to like do all the things, then come over to us because we are trying to make sure that all the legal stuff is done correctly. We do limit which licenses you can use. We do the CLAs, which again, offends some people, but I don't feel like DCOs have real protection. So, and half the time they're broken. So we're doing all this legal stuff and then we're doing all this safety stuff in the background, like license scanning and security scanning. And, and what we're also looking at is how do we do the financial sustainability models in the future? It's not up yet, but that's one of the things that we're working on a lot, which is sitting there going, oh, okay. So if we have all these humanitarian projects, which IEEE does a lot of, how do we make sure that they are sustainable? It's the podcast, right? And it's like, yeah. oh, well, we need to see this. We need to see that. Oh, do you need some extra spend on marketing? Do you need a security audit like we did at Hyperledger? Do we need to spend all this different stuff on you to make sure that you're at the level of quality you need to be? Which is like, like I said, one of the major expenditures that we had at Hyperledger was doing all of that, was making sure that everything is where it needed to be in regards to quality so that if people sit there and adopt these blockchains, they're not going to be like dangerous or things of that nature. And that was the big budget ask. And so it was a good thing. And I believe that we need to do more of that for open source in general. And so we're also like working on a badging program for a bunch of different things. So it's like, okay, I got the marketing stamp of approval. I got community stamp of approval. I got the security stamp of approval. So they can go through that entire thing and collect all the, I have this whole Girl Scout, you know, image in my head of having the swath with all the badges for a project or an individual, either being able to come in and do that on the platform eventually. Sounds like that'll help out projects which have the time and energy to actually do those things. Most open source projects don't. Most open source projects right. are thrown over the wall and just discarded, which yeah. may not be a bad thing, right? That's just how innovation works. People try stuff out and you can view GitHub as a giant legal pad of failed attempts <laughs> with occasional transfers over to actually nice paper. Right. When we talk about sustainability, a lot of what you're saying is really interesting. I really like the pathway towards becoming sustainable, being littered with badges. Another way you could do this is certifications. Mm -hmm. So yes. what do you think about those? Which IEEE does a lot of certifications. And so that's another thing that we are interested in doing is some of that. And for a lot of the badges, some of them are certification-like. Some of them are checklist-based. Right now, they're going through a lot on the badges to figure out how they want to suss all that out and how the platform can also support it in the future. And so at the moment, they're in the design phases for a lot of that. And so the marketing group is basically talking about individuals getting certs. And the technical advisory group is talking about projects getting certs for those different badges and stuff. And so they are very much so intertwined in regards to that. And that's one of the, like I said, one of the beautiful things about going with IEEE is one of the major things that they do is they recruit from engineering schools all over the world. And so that's how they get a lot of their members. So there are a lot of people there that are very interested in learning what that is, what those processes are, how they can get involved in that and how they can do that well. And so it's, I think, a pretty powerful entity for that. Awesome. 
I worry as someone who has massive imposter syndrome, especially in the JavaScript community, that certifications are scary things that I don't want to get because I won't be able to get them. Do you feel like they may slow down open source development by forcing people to jump through hoops in order to like do work? I think that they will slow down development, which is a controversial statement to make. But I think that that's in certain instances, okay. And that's why I think to have a complete ecosystem, you need to have something like the GitHub of the world where people can go, ah, just throw stuff on the wall and sit there and see if any of it sticks. But over here, because of the fact that we're looking at this investment, that we're doing standards, that we're doing all these, I was calling it mature open source. (laughs) Don't know if that's going to work. I was doing that because of the maturity model, (laughs) but at the same time as a 50 something year old woman, it's like, maybe, I don't know. I'll have to rethink that. I haven't found a better better word yet. They were also talking serious open source, which I'm like, that doesn't jive with me either. So if anyone has any suggestions, please send them Seriously sharp, like cheddar cheese. It's more mature. It's sharper. It's good. Sharp open source. I don't know. Sharp something. But it is about, because of the fact that we will be committing resources and we will be doing all these different things, bringing it up to another level of maturity. So we're not just all scrounging around on level one. Instead, let's bring them all up to level five, where we have defined processes. Everybody knows we've got good metrics. We've got all those different things. That's why I work so much with the chaos group is because we're constantly working on the metrics for this and trying to figure out what that's going to go look like. And so that's a really good group to go work with. And so we do that. And I've also been spreading out and meeting with other groups. Like there's a new one called Across that was started by Ocean and Google and talking with that one. And then the standards groups have their own too that are going on. And so several countries, which was like surprising. And then I found out about Dial, which is the Digital Impact Alliance. And they're doing a bunch of stuff in regards to that. So we're trying to figure out how can we share what we're doing with these other foundations that are doing, because they're also trying to figure out how to fund things. And they're like, well, like I had a discussion with Larry Brilliant and I think Richard Rockefeller had a presentation at the Long Now back in 2006 or seven, something like that. And love the Long Now. I'd love it. Yeah, totally. Well, we're not quite on that scale, but But seriously, that's moonshot goals. Sustain should be the long now. Like, how do we sustain, sustain stuff for 10,000 years? Sustain goes for 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> Dive on into that pool, Richard. <laughs> Working on it. What were you saying to, to Rich Rockefeller and Larry? So it was funny because they were talking about how frustrated they were in helping nonprofits make software investments. And so they're like, yeah, we're just not going to do it anymore. But I went over to I talked to him about it. And I said, please don't think that way. I said, instead, think about open source. And I'm like, and think about investing in open source and getting open source products. I said, because the problem is this corporate world is not always going to be thinking of nonprofits and what your actual needs are going to be because they have a different market. And so be careful doing that. And then I also introduced him to Brian Bellendorf and Brian like basically convinced him, nope, just only that money in open source. But then they had another problem, which is, you know, I'm talking with the UN foundation people and then the dial people is that then they were like, ah, then sometimes they run off and create crappy open source. So oh, no. how do we like, how do we prevent that? You know, so they have a whole nurturing program that they do. That's pretty well, it's, it's very well constructed. It's very well thought out in regards to how are you going to do your software development? What are you going to do to make sure that it's production ready? You know, da, 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 da. but it's hard to teach nonprofits to become a software company. It's not really what they do or their forte. And so that's like a struggle. And so instead I was like, well, why don't we create a safe place for people to come in and start doing that and doing that better. Because with open source, we have this myth 
that, you know, it's the lone developer dun, 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 charging in to solve a problem without all of those annoying other people around and no, 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 no. So therefore he can do what really needs to be done. And it's a load of crap. If you sit there and you look at any really good, sustainable open source project, that's not what its community looks like. But we have this inherent bias because that's all that the tools give us. They just sit there and say, oh, here's how many lines of code. Here's how many pull requests. Here's how many commits got through, blah, 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 blah. And it's a lie. You know, I did a lot of volunteer work with Drupal. I did the first Drupal, you know, codeathons in 2006, which weren't popular at the beginning, by the way. They thought we were all just going to write a bunch of crappy code and and we don't see why, you know, you're doing this. And then afterwards they were like, okay, that was awesome. (laughs) And I was just like, and now they do them at every single event. Like every single event, they've got some sprint, they've got some hacking thing, they've got something going on. But does anybody know that? No, they don't. Dries knows it. All these other people know it, but a lot of other people, they, they just don't know that because there was no credit. There was no love given in regards to it. And it would be nice if they figured that out. And Drupal's been doing a lot on that. Like it was really great sitting there seeing their presentation at OspoCon because they were talking about, oh, well, actually now we're doing this and this and this and this. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to measure all of that. And we're doing a similar experiment at IEEE where we're doing things like we have three advisory groups and they live on the meta level in that they're kind of like the platform overall, not a single project. And what they do is like we have the technical advisory group, which is what you would expect, but they still are a little bit more than that because it's also like, oh, product owners and architects and designers. And, you know, and so they're like taking it up a notch. And then we have the marketing advisory group, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's a lot more than that. So it's like marketing and evangelism and speakers and events and da, 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 da. So you can get some love going on there, which is a lot of that work is overlapping with chaos because like they're doing the event badging and all that kind of stuff. So we're like going back and forth on our meetings going, okay, well, if you create this, then what we can create over here is this because you're creating the badge. And then let's sit there and see how we can get that into software over here. So we're doing that sort of thing. And then we have my mystical one, which, you know, Georg Link runs, which is the community advisory group, which was an experiment. And it's like, you know, Dries wrote that great article about makers and takers and the takers are the users. I'm like, convert your takers to makers. They don't have to be big makers. They can be little makers like, oh, we think this feature is really cool. Could you prioritize it? Or, hey, um, we found these bugs or things of that nature. And so like include them into it. And so that's like where they talk about, first of all, keeping that atmosphere of inclusivity and mentorship for everyone. And then also a bunch of the special interests. And so like we had the education subgroup, which is like Steve Jacobs and Mike Nolan and a bunch of other educators from others, including K through 12, looking at our platform going, oh, wow, this is cool. But (laughs) or yes, and we could use these things, too. And so then they went and took it to the tag and sat there and talked about the platform suggestion and approval process and the tool suggestion and approval process and put in a bunch of stuff to sit there and say, could you prioritize these for helping support education and academia better? And to me, that's like the dream. That's what I really needed to get out of the community is that kind of input. And I feel like that's lacking the majority of the time in open source. There's no clear paths in regards to that. It's just like this whole are you a contributor or are you a maintainer? It's not like, yo, guys, what is it that you want and need? Because it just doesn't seem to exist. And so we're creating those kind of pathways and figuring out, well, what does the governance on that look like anyhow? 
<laughs> you know, it's like, which is why we're creating the processes are kind of complex right now. There's a lot of steps in there, but you know, we'll figure it out. We'll sit there and see if that all works and how that works. But at the same time, we're getting some pretty good evaluations of open source software that's already out there, which will help with the badging. So it's like, all right, cool. Let's keep going. And basically when we adopt a piece of software into our platform tool set, it's like, maybe that ends up becoming like, you have to have a certain level of badging on that to get there. You know, things of that nature are occurring and that's kind of cool. Thanks for sharing all that. It's really interesting to see how IEEE is doing work. It sounds a lot like Sustain. Some of your working groups are very similar, which is cool. I mean, we're all working together. Chaos is a podcast that we also sponsor. They have a podcast that Georg runs. Stephen Jacobs is on episode 22. It's worth checking out. Also have to give a shout out to Rachel Lawson, who's been on this podcast twice, who's just doing really good work at Drupal, trying to make sure that community is steered in the right way. It's a hard ship to turn, Drupal. It is a very big old (laughs) ship. Just want to give massive props to her for her work. So a lot of what you're talking about with the working groups is is approaches that we're also trying here. What I'm curious about is what's the long-term goal of these certifications and badges? Because it seems like a lot of effort to go out and manually get these stuff. It takes like a lot of effort to ramp a project up. And that effort, I feel like, adds friction to every project. We end up with makers trying to become maintainers, burning out, and so on. How do you feel... Like if if we could not do the long now foundation, 10,000 years, but maybe 50 years down the road, where do you think we're going to be in terms of badges and certification for open source? Have you thought about that? So I know that group is thinking a lot about it. For me, I look at it in the fact that it is owned by the community. And so to me, they get to evolve it themselves and they get to decide where a lot of those directions are going. For the group as a whole, One huge goal is quality. And so we talk a lot about that. And I know for the technical advisory group, they talk a lot about production readiness and making sure that you can like basically send some out and say, yeah, it's production ready. You know, it's funny going to OspoCon and sitting there, everyone was reusing that XKCD slide, you know, the one that has that one little huge infrastructure, that one little, yeah. And that's like the bane of something like IEEE's existence. (laughs) really don't like things like that. Like they look at that and they see it because they're hardware people and they're just like, no, we have to do something about that. And so when it comes to pieces like that, they look at that and they're just like, how do we make that sustainable? How do we make sure that's safe? And it's okay. And it's like, yeah, okay, fine. It's this one little brick maintained by this one dude, but how do we make sure that it's not just maintained by one dude? How do we give the resources? How do we do this? How do we do that? And they're very focused on things like that. So Yeah, it's really kind of neat working with a bunch of engineers (laughs) because they are very much so focused on, well, what, you know, it's very rarely an emotional discussion. (laughs) It's much more factual and like, well, where is this thing, though? Sometimes there's vocabulary mismatches and sometimes there's speed mismatches. But in regards to the getting it right that's not a mismatch. And and I think that's one of the things that does really well. What about complexity mismatches? So how do you measure real value? I know that's something you've talked about before. Yeah, yeah. So that's been interesting. So that's been coming in from the standard side a lot because of the fact that standards, they really do want to be there for the long haul. And so that's a frequent conversation as to how to make sure of that and not only that, but how to evolve. And that's been the hard part for them a lot of times because 
a little bit too often with the standards, they have such a one and done versioning cycle, just like publications in science and just academia in general. And that's been like kind of the main thing that I've been like working over is I'm trying to explain to them that no software especially doesn't work that way. I'm like, if you have a security patch, if you have this, if you have that, things change underneath you. The platform doesn't work anymore. Da, 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 da. You know, there's too many dependencies to sit there and think that anything is ever one and done. It's constantly evolving. And so there's been a lot of figuring out what that's going to be, what that's going to look like, because previously on the software model, they're just like, nope, it's locked. It's it. Can't change anything. Here you go. (laughs) Which is like useful for a few weeks, (laughs) but that's about it. And then what you're supposed to come through and do a whole thing in regards to standards again. Nobody's doing that. And so we've been talking a lot with versioning models and branching versus forking and things of that nature. And then also regular checkups and using a bunch of those metrics. But the cool thing is that means that they're also very into the metrics portion where they're like, well, how do we get to these better metrics? Well, we obviously need these kind of metrics over here, which we don't have at all. And obviously we need these metrics over here, which we don't have at all. So how do we start creating those? And so they're very into that piece. And that's also a lot of the input that I got in from Dial too. The Digital Impact Alliance group is they're doing similar things where they're like, well, you know, before sitting there and saying that a piece of open source software is safe to use, what does its community look like? What is its changeover? Are they doing audits? Are they doing, you know, there's a lot of different things to go in and look and see where it's at. You know, one of the things that I argued and got with IEEE is control over CICD. If you don't have that and a corporation has control over, do you really actually have control over anything? And like, basically it forces you to fork if you don't. And so I'm like, so you need to have all of these things, not to mention also, I watched a lot of things in regards to the supply chain on the software, and I still didn't see anything that prevents the source forge thing from happening in regards to insertions. So there's a lot of stuff there in regards to that. Solana, I wish we had more time. There's a lot more I want to discuss with you. I want to discuss Hyperledger. I want to discuss using cryptocurrencies to pay maintainers. I want to discuss the supply chain more forever all the time. Unfortunately, that is about it for this episode. For now, I have a couple of final questions. One of them is where can people find you on the web? Yes. So to find all the information about the project is saopen.ieee.org. And that's the main website for finding me personally. Best thing is probably Twitter or LinkedIn. And my addition to the URL is just my name, S-I-L-O-N-A. So you can normally, if you Google that, it's most often me. So you can find me on whatever you prefer in regards to that. But I'm on Twitter a lot. So it's a easy way. I'm not always posting to Twitter. I am reading and watching Twitter. I mostly post at conferences. Yeah, same. Which reminds me of the last part of this show. So Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, plushies, whatever, what have you, which we want to just show some light towards, shed some light on. So my Spotlight today is actually Spot. Tom Calloway has been on this podcast before. He was on the podcast, I believe, in episode number 52. I was at OspoCon with Salona last week in Seattle, and I managed to end up at a table with drinks with Spot at one point, and he told me all about his adventure with Canada. I won't say any more because I don't know if it's public knowledge, but if you ever see Spot, ask him about Canada. It's an awesome story. I was blown away. What a cool person. 
Go listen to Podcast 52 if you haven't yet. Just super awesome. So that's my spotlight. Salona, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight would be Intersource Commons. Intersource Commons has inspired the majority of the sustainability work that we're doing on this platform. Going in and being in the corporate environment and realizing all the additional things that really go into the secret sauce of making something that's truly production ready and robust and all of that nature. I learned through doing Intersource Commons. And it wasn't that I didn't know these things before. I did. It's just that sitting down, especially the patterns community there, it just like makes my little nerd heart happy. It's not coding, but it is systematic thinking and systematic thought. So if you're into that, please go over to Intersource Commons and totally check out the patterns group because they nerd out like nobody's business. And I love it. They are very cool. I wish I had known of them years ago when I started doing this work. I would have saved all the gray hair that I have. <laughs> Salona, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. Looking forward to seeing you in the future. Looking forward to seeing how IAAA SA Open continues to grow. And that's it. Thanks again. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it, Richard. Take care. 